namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami Please sit comfortably. We, uh, we're fortunate here that we have a uh, tradition that we can live together with, and a tradition which is not defined by any of us deliberately, but rather a tradition that comes to us from Thailand, in India before that, Sri Lanka. And to have a kind of cultural vehicle, I find rather marvelous that, that it's not just uh, me meditating on my own and reading a book or two, but rather a whole cultural vehicle that carries us in a, in a way which I find quite, quite beautiful. And I think this ceremony at, at the end of a winter retreat, 2016, is kind of emblematic of the kind of cultural beauty that can help us and, and bring us together in, in ways which are not egotistical, not about the person, not about the individual, but rather about our communal aspiration for freedom. And yet the aspiration is, is individual. No community can be enlightened. Only individuals can realize freedom from suffering. And yet we live together and support each other in this communal way. So the uh, asking for forgiveness is very symbolic. Uh, the, the Sangha and the friends of the Sangha pay respect to the uh, senior monk, who happens to be me right now, and the whole group. We all, myself included, we open ourselves in a way where we say, you know, if, I've, if I've done anything which has really been off and I you know, haven't seen it or I've hurt you or whatever, you know, help me out and show me, let me know. And that, that's quite a, a beautiful thing to say at the end of a retreat. To, to say, and you can still open the heart and say, yeah, I'm not perfect. Uh, I've got my blind spots. Um, and if you can help me, and if you can show me my blind spots, great. Let's talk about it. And that doesn't mean that we then go off in each other's cor- you know, corners and then talk about what happened. That usually that, there isn't much of that, actually. But I think it's more like a, this attitude that we, we develop in the heart of of non-aggression, of non-competition, of uh, non-judgment, of compassion, of supporting each other, of forgiving each other. You know, you can think of many other words around that. And yet we have, you know, we have competitive energies, we have aggressive energies, we have, we're certainly judgmental, but those aren't the things that we uphold, they're not the things that we hold highest and dearest. And this ceremony is a way of remembering that. This, you know, it's not it's not sentimental or airy fairy or uh, un- impractical. It just points to the interesting fact that we we as humans, for some reason, we can, we have we have a lot of choice. You know, we can make choices. We can we can wake up in the morning with a foul mood and choose not to speak through that negative mood, we can choose not to act through that mood, we can choose not to think even through that mood, and that's, that's rather marvelous uh, possibility. Sometimes we're not 
mindful enough to do that. And vice versa, we can wake in the morning with compassion in the heart and act on that, decide to enhance that, decide to make that stronger through the way we talk, through the way we act, and through the way we think. And and the sort of marvelous thing about a being human being is this, this capacity to choose, to choose direction and and to choose the way we incline our minds. And some of the things that come to us, we have no choice. So we have some moods that, that come into our consciousness which have been conditioned from family, and sometimes we don't even know where they're conditioned from. Moods which are maybe negative, and I know for myself, I have, I have, I can feel guilty for nothing. It's stunning sometimes, I just feel guilty. So where the heck's that coming from? But for no, I cannot, I cannot see any cause. No one's done anything. I haven't done anything. I haven't smoked dope for a long time. <laughs> Maybe it comes from that. I don't know. But, but a mood like that comes into the heart. And, and, and now, well, the beauty of this practice is that we accept everything, and yet we incline toward that which is wholesome and beautiful and uplifting. But we include everything because what choice does one have? If a feeling like in this instance of guilt comes into my mind and I'm living my life as best I can in a way which is not harming people, do I have a choice? And do I do I wake in the morning and think I'm not gonna have that mood? Or I'm gonna have that and I don't I really have a choice. Where where does choice arise? Well it arises with the mood. And the mood comes into consciousness. It's stimulated by memory, by certain activity, by whatever it is. And then it starts to create something, doesn't it? It starts to create me and you. It starts to create self and other. And then my choice is to constantly awaken to mood of mind as mood of mind rather than as a self-entity that I have to somehow get rid of, sort out or or, or do something about. And the more centered we are, the more diligent we are in, in uh, awakening to thought, the more we'll know the, the mood of the mind, the more skillful we, we can be in, in choosing the direction we take in that particular moment. We get better and better at it. So the mood comes and it stays for a while. One's kind of, whoa, where's that coming from? But because it's known fully and consciously and not rejected and yet not indulged in, it goes its own way. It's weather. It passes. So there's a whole large part of our life which is based on restraint. Yeah? Uh, restraint on that which is unskillful, un- unprofitable. But restraint is not repression. Restraint is not denial. Restraint is not saying that one shouldn't feel something. No, restraint is... Restraint is making the choice not to follow a certain pathway. And that's different than repression, suppression. Oh, I, don't, I don't know how these words are defined in psychology. I never studied psychology. But it's not a denial of life. And it's not a rejection of whatever moods come up. It's just choice. It's just choosing. And karma is choice, isn't it? So the karma I have is the accumulated consequences of my choices. So we all, we're all going to, our lives change wee bit now. 
So some people go to Montreal and some people go to Toronto and some people go to back to the Kutis. <laughs> right? But you know, the amount of stimulation we have now will be much, much more. But of course, we've, we've lived a very um, unreal life in many ways. This, this time that we have together, not unreal in the sense that we're not facing real things, but most of life is much more uh, stimulating. There's much more sense input that comes to us. And, and that triggers things, triggers moods, triggers feelings, triggers chaos, triggers uh, hecticness, triggers annoyance, triggers doubt, all manner of things. And these triggers can be very, very quick. And what we train in and practice in is, is seeing that the, the, whether it's the situation is very, very complex or the situation is very simple, like we've had now, you know, relatively very, very simple, or it's more complex and we have to work with people who are not into Dharma, uh, being in, in busy situations, whatever it is, simple or complex, the same practice of, of constantly recognizing where, well, where our intentions are taking us, where our thoughts are taking us, where language is taking us, where communication is taking us, constantly, constantly being vigilant in that way. And then the necessity of restraint becomes quite obvious. To, to be restrained in, uh, in, the, in the kind of sense inputs we have as much as possible, to be, to be restrained in, in the following of moods which are unskillful, to be restrained in the communication that we have which is unskillful. It's so important, isn't it? So kind of, if we don't have a sense of pause and restraint, then we just, we keep reinforcing the kind of karmic, uh, tendencies of ego and suffering that plagued us for so many years already. So that's a big part of Buddhist practice, Indriya Sangwara, sense restraint. Attitudes like of being content with little, one when he was content with the requisites, bhikkhus. And that part takes a lot of patience, takes a lot of endurance. It really endures sometimes. So sometimes you have a mood that is really not nice, quite disturbing. And it just wants to grab your mind, wants to grab your thinking mind and create a reality around it. And then we all know that just takes you to more alienation and separation. So we emphasize like endurance, forbearance, patience, these kinds of things over and over and over and again, we keep saying that. But restraint isn't the only part of our life. You know, there's also the kind of active part that we have. So the the part that all of you as uh, as lay support this retreat have done so very very well you've you've activated uh, dhanabharami and compassion and generosity and creativity in the kitchen and uh, so many other things um, even though i'm sure you all had negative mind states and you all had different modes of judgment and hatred and delusion coming up into consciousness realize also that you, you, you were acting in ways which are very noble you know, feeding, offering food to the Sangha for three months um, this is very very meritorious very very wholesome skillful thing to, to do and I'm not just saying this because I enjoyed your cooking <laughs> it's more than that because if you think about intention intentionality and, and the flow of the mind, where you've, you've, you've constantly taken the flow of the mind towards service. You've constantly taken the flow of the mind, or how can we make the bhikkhus 
be able to do this retreat. And you've done that again and again and again. Maybe it's not so conscious, but really that's what you did. Otherwise, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have been able to do this retreat. So whether you were doing secretarial work or cleaning the snow or maintaining the tractor or driving to the shops or cleaning the stove or cooking the tofu or you know, whatever whatever you did, it, it was a very wholesome, very skillful, and, and even if your mind was grumbling, even if it was discontent or something, you still did it. Right? You still did it. And that's quite often uh, a big thing where the mind might feel discontent, maybe lazy, not want to come to morning practice, or uh, fed up with a bit of work, but you still do it. And we still do it. We rise above the mood, and that's skillful. So there's both restraint. I'm not dumping the mood on anyone as much as possible. Sometimes we do. That's all right. But trying not to dump the mood, being mature, observing the mood. And then that's the restraint part. But then the active part is, no, I'll do my duty. You know, I will. I'll cook this meal and I'll clean up after. And, you know, all the little things that make household things that, that are important. So that both of these work hand in glove, don't they? Restraint and action kind of part of part of a skillful life. And all the time we're making choices towards the skillful and abandoning the unskillful. And these are little things throughout the day. They're not spectacular and they're not like great absorbed meditations. And sometimes we perhaps we overemphasize this sort of quality of very high meditation experiences and very deep, deep, deep uh, meditation experiences and then certainly they're important. But the real foundation of peace are, are these little things, just the little things of not having enough mindfulness not to get caught in the moods and to do what's appropriate, do one's duty, do, to do that which is right. And then the, the accumulated virtue of that, the accumulated consequences of that is the mind is free from remorse. The mind has a sense of uplift that, yeah, I, I did what was right, I did what was appropriate. The mind hasn't kind of engaged in endless self, self-obsession. You know, so there's kind of freedom in the mind because it's not just self-absorbed all the time and so on. And that enhances meditation. It is meditation, really. And so the, the sitting practice is enhanced by that. So as, you, as, you, as we all go in now into more uh, a different mode of, of activity, so the monastery will have a much more active time, talking more and doing projects and welcoming people to Saturdays and so on, the, the, the stimulation is different, but the practice remains the same. And for those who will be leaving the environment of and the safety of the monastery, whatever you faced in the world in terms of livelihood, uh, family responsibilities, uh, getting food on the table and so on, <laughs> All you can really know is what, what you think will happen now. You don't know what will happen. All you can really know is that you're anticipating something or dreading something or looking forward to something or hoping for something or uh, whatever it is. All you can really know is that's the mood of the mind now. You don't know what will happen. You don't know. And, and our, our practice of is this kind of timeless. It, it's both in time and out of time. In time is the sense, well, you have to plan. You have to figure out how you're going to get from A to B. You have to plan how you're going to pay your rent, 
how are you going to pay for the bills? And so there has to be planning. So that's more like Vinaya. That's the worldly dharmas that we attend to as best we can. And then the timeless is always this awakened mind, awakened mind to the mood of the mind and to non-grasping, to see the khandhas as the khandhas, to see moods as an ichadukanata rather than as self-entities. So there is this, this time, the conventional reality, which is about time, and then there's that timelessness of the still and silent mind, which is always there. It's always there. If we don't get enthralled by the movement, if we see that, that the stillness of mind knows the movement, that's hard to see as life becomes more complicated. To come to the stillness of the mind, we have to be willing to be still with discomfort. We have to be willing to be attentive to disappointment. And there's a lot of emphasis in, in the spiritual life, whatever tradition, is on that which is uncomfortable, isn't there? Things like disappointment and, and fear and, and um, self-doubt and self-disparagement. These, these different energies that haunt the mind, the different kinds of moods that haunt the mind. Because in those moods that, that are very strong, we have to hold a very steady gaze and not, not blink, not run away from that stuff, not distract it into some kind of compensation, but actually hold a steady gaze on something like disappointment. We're talking about a friend's car, who was a great story. Like, like that quote I, was, I picked up from Barbara Tuchman, the, the conceit of a happy plan. Great phrase. So the warmonger says, yeah, we'll invade this country. And Mr. Bush says, yeah, this is a good plan. We'll invade Iraq. We'll do shock and awe. That'll be a good thing to do. We'll get rid of Saddam Hussein. And look at the mess. Utter, utter horrible mess that's come of that. And Mr. Bush gets on the aircraft carrier. Mission accomplished. Anyway. But that's the conceit of, the, of, a, of a happy plan. Now we don't, you know, we live in moral boundaries. You know, we were protected from that kind of extreme karma. And yet... We have we have the conceit of a happy plan. And we have we have greed. Or we have you know, like sometimes we we think we'll say something to someone, right? And that'll really sort them out. That's the conceit of a happy plan. You know, when I say this to that person and that'll really sort them out, it never works. It never works. Oh gosh. I didn't think they'd answer like that. <laughs> and and so there's disappointment. You know, there's disappointment in life where a person disappoints us or uh, a car, a new car disappoints us or a monastery disappoints us or a teacher disappoints us or our own practice disappoints us. Isn't it? To, to look at disappointment, uh, think about it, it's very uncomfortable, very, very difficult to look at disappointment. And then what do we do? As an example, we blame ourselves. Oh, if I had made that other choice, I wouldn't have this disappointment. Others, we blame others. If that person was different, I wouldn't feel disappointed. And we never, we never, I'm not saying we never, but we have find it more difficult just to see, well, disappointment is a natural condition. Because you just can't get it right. Try all you want. 
So the, the happy plan arises, I'll do this, I'll do that, this will be great. And then that's proliferation, that's birth. Right? And I'm sure there were a few births during the retreat. Probably, I, I guess the, the biggest birth was probably my mother's Donna. <laughs> there must have been some thinking that went into that. Well, that's pretty good. I wasn't disappointed. I don't know about you. <laughs> But that's how the mind works, doesn't it? It gets a, it gets a happy plan and starts to uh, indulge in that because it's fun. You know, birth is fun that way. Oh, this would be nice. I'll do this. Then we do that. Da, 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 da. And then, of course, um, when you start to live it out, much more complicated, much more difficult, and oftentimes it's disappointing. Uh, and that's the conceit of a happy plan. But something like generosity... Just that impulse. Yeah, can I make you a cup of tea? Or that, uh, or that impulse. Say, can I wash your windows? Or just seeing someone slipping on the, an old person slipping on the ice. Oh, can I hold your hand and get you across the street? That impulse isn't the conceit of a happy plan. It's selflessness, isn't it? It's beautiful. It brings real happiness. It doesn't doesn't really bring disappointment. If I expect a reward from you. If I say, I'll wash your windows, Bunty, and, and, uh, and, uh, and I'll let you wash my windows, and then I'm, and I critique your windows. Maybe. But just that impulse, just that impulse of generosity, of compassion, it, it doesn't disappoint. Because it's, it's, it's something that's not coming from a conceit of a happy plan. It's not, it's not coming from a place of, of trying to get something in the future for myself. Or it, you know, it's, it's just coming from this purity of expression, generosity, compassion. And you can see that, that that is so far away from craving. Craving is that which creates the conceit of a happy plan. And craving disappoints. It's just its nature. It's just its nature. Whereas generosity doesn't disappoint, or, or, or compassion doesn't disappoint, because there's no... There's no real expectation there. One does it because one is almost compelled, or not compelled, but one just knows that's what you do. That's what you do. That's what's appropriate. That's what's right. That's, and it's fulfilling. And so the active part of our life is this, this heartfelt participation in life, not holding back, and yet restrained. Restrained in terms of senses, in terms of mood, in terms of what's skillful and unskillful. So it's like you're fully participating with your heart, and yet you know, you know what's appropriate and not appropriate, Dhamma Vinaya. To kind of live from the heart rather than from the head is something that our culture doesn't teach us. It teaches us more to be analytical, critical, judgmental, to be very planning-oriented, to be organized and structured, and very much in thought. Have it all figured out. Have all the details for you. I know when I, whenever I go to, if I do a retreat in Asia, it's interesting. Like it's kind of vague. Yeah, we'll kind of sit together and meditate. If I do a retreat in North America, they want to know how many pieces of cheese should go on the tray, <laughs> or you know exactly what time will each interview be, or you know this kind of need to fix and have everything into a comfortable plan that is secure and safe and you know what's going to happen. That's our, that's our kind of cultural conditioning of, of, 
of uh, organized stuff. Uh, and both have their place. You know, to have a kind of chaotic retreat is not fun for the teacher, when no one knows anything that's going on. But also to not be, to, to always be obsessed with having figured everything out, having all kind, everything laid out for you is also problematic. So we do our best to, to kind of plan our lives in the future. So I've got, I've got my plans, you've got your plans. Some are vague, some are, some, are, some are specific, and that's the sort of game plan that we have. But where we really find the liberation is, is in the heart, don't we? Moment by moment, that's where we find the real liberation, not, not through, through the conceit of a happy plan. We never get that right. So, for the monastery, we have a, you know, we're going to talk about our 20-year plan. And that's important. And that's very important. And uh, we'll do our best, but uh, no 20-year plan is going to get me out of suffering. No 20-year plan is going to get me out of fear. It's going to liberate me from greed, hate, and delusion. No, no, no structure can do that. Only awareness, awakened awareness to these things is not self, is where I can find real freedom. And yet we don't have a 20-year plan, the chaos gets so overwhelming that I don't have a chance to look at my heart. So it's a kind of due diligence life. You know what we do? We live by the Vinaya, we live by the protocols of our culture, uh, so that it's not more chaotic, and not more messy, not, not more confusing. And that's the great skill, I think, of the Western monasteries, is that we're quite, we're quite good. Like, I think we're all very grateful to Tanchunda for organizing this this winter uh, retreat. So, so very very it took a long time. It took a lot of effort to uh, to check you guys all out and make sure we had enough people <laughs> and so on and so forth. And that that is you know, made the retreat very easy for me. I didn't have to think much about that. So that's a great skill to do that. And those are the worldly skills that we now will try to manifest. Each of us has different worldly skills, you know, and we learn different worldly skills. And to offer them with generosity is a nice thing, isn't it? To say, okay, I can, yeah, I'm pretty good at this. How can I offer this to the community? Uh, I'm not good at that. I'll learn it if I need to. And so uh, a life lived in the sense of generosity and compassion rather than competition and, and one-upmanship or something like that it's a very beautiful life. We're fortunate that in a monastery that is the that's really the upheld norm of compassion and generosity rather than other norms you might have in conventional society of cutthroat competition or maybe like that. And so that's a rare thing probably. I don't know. I haven't been in the work world for forty three years. I don't know how that works. But that's the kind of gift that we have being in the monastery. So, as the new year begins, as it were, this is our kind of the start of our new year, I guess. In some way, we started in a suspicious way by doing a retreat. And, and so I feel tremendous gratitude to all of you for making this possible. I mean, it's very easy for me. I had no real problems. There have been years where it's been a challenge managing some of the folk on the retreat, but you seem to manage yourselves very, very well. I know you've you know you've you've had you've had your differences and, and, and all of that, but you've been mature enough to work them through, and um, 
please try to remember that whatever differences you might have had, that the highest thing you did was was live as a community. The highest thing you did is that you fulfilled your duties. You lived by the precepts. You did your very best to to communicate your differences in, in a mature way. And that's rather marvelous. That's rather marvelous. And sometimes the negative memories are the ones that can hold a mind. I know for myself that's very much the case sometimes. You know, some some negative memory from 20 years ago is stronger than all the positive experiences. It's maybe, I don't know if I'm neurotic that way or that's just human nature. But if there are any negativities that come up in these last three months, then you just do, do kind of practices where anything I've done, what a speech remind to anyone, please forgive me, say that to yourself. And anything that's been done to me, but by speech your mind, that was painful, I'll forgive them. And that's a very interesting practice to do, where it's a kind of mental practice where you sit down and you, you verbalize that. You, you don't have to go to each other, you can. But you just you sit down and say, for anything I've done, we body speech your mind to anyone on this retreat, please forgive me. And then you wait. Anyway, nothing, whoo, memory comes up. I remember, oh yeah, yeah, that, that dagger was not very nice. And you say, please forgive me. And not in, in, within your own heart. And it clears a lot of stuff. It's interesting. So then you, you do that, play around. And the other one, and for anything that's been done to me, but body, speech, your mind, I forgive you. And then you wait. And nothing, and then, <laughs> and then something comes up. And you say, ah, oh, yeah, that, that's the memory. Yeah, I forgive you. If you can't forgive, well, then you just take the memory and say, ooh, this is really painful, and you wait. And then at some point you say, yeah, 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 but I forgive you. So you start to make conscious whatever's going on in the, in the negative field, and you deliberately own it, and then you make the intention. You make the choice of forgiveness. And the third one is you take you know, whatever I've done to myself, I forgive myself. Sometimes we're very self-critical. Oh, I shouldn't have done this, and I shouldn't have done that. I could have done this better, blah, 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 blah. And you say, okay, for anything I've done, if I speak in my mind, it's unskillful, I forgive myself. And you wait. No, oh, nothing. And then, oi, oi, that was stupid. <laughs> or whatever. You say, no, 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 I forgive you if you're a dumb one. It's okay, you tried. Yeah, but no, no, I forgive you if you're a dumb one. And somehow the kind of holding of the negative mind is then kind of seen, you kind of make it conscious, you see it, and then you, you say, oh, it's just a thought, it's just memory, it's not, it's not an ultimate truth. And yet if we don't do exercises like that, or at least think in those ways, it can seem like an ultimate truth. So I can, I can then say, oh yeah, retreat of 2016, yeah, it was great, but I remember that time I really blew it and I did all, and we create more around it than it is, and it's memory. So forgiveness is, is a kind of a skillful practice of compassion that we can, we can make conscious and we can do so that we depart from this particular form and we're still going to be around, but we be, depart from this particular form in a, in a very skillful way. Not like having a, you know, like having a party at the end and getting totally drunk and stoned and kind of <laughs> blowing the whole, the whole three months <laughs> or just going to Tim Hortons and eating a lot of donuts all day or something silly like that. <laughs> but actually we, we, we exit from this form in a very, very skillful way so that the mind is uplifted, 
so that has a good memory, so that it's something in our hearts which is which is a which is a factor of enlightenment. It's a foundation for enlightenment. And our memory system is, is very important. It's very powerful. And the more we understand memory systems and the more we 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 don't allow the self-disparaging memories to take hold or the alienating energies of a resentment or so on, the more we, we know them as memories, the more the mind is clear of memory, the more the mind is clear of self, and the more quiet the mind is. It's easier to meditate, easier to focus on the breath. Yeah, so, so um, yeah, I'm very grateful, very grateful. And uh, I certainly wish you all the very, very best in whatever ways you continue to develop the practice. I, I do hope you experience good health, profitable livelihood, good companionship, more and more clarity in your meditation, more and more faith in, in the path. And ultimately, I really, really do wish you, you know, freedom from all your stuff, all the karmic forces which, which cause you suffering. You may be free from that. And may you realize the deep silence and compassion of the heart. Amen. Andamayang tamakatasa tukantatamase. Sa-